By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome to another episode of EM Decoded. I am your host, Vitar Anzali, from the Emerging Markets team at Moody's. So today we're going to talk about the outlook for the Middle East and North Africa region, or MENA. I'm very much delighted to be joined by three special guests. We have Christian Fang from the Sovereign team, Badis Shubaylet from the Financial Institutions team, and Rihan Akbar from the Corporate team. Now, I think the best way to start the conversation here is to look at the big picture. Christian, I can see you have outlined a stable outlook for the MENA sovereigns in 2024. Why don't you talk us through your rationale for this? Hi, Victoria. I'm glad to be here. Um, yes, we've got a stable outlook for MENA sovereigns, and this is supported by regional growth dynamics. Large investments, especially those that public sector led, are happening across a number of economies. And business and consumer sentiment are generally still solid, partly because oil and gas prices remain supportive. And there are also economic linkages between hydrocarbon exporting economies and those that do not export hydrocarbons, such as through remittances and investments. So these constructive regional factors are likely to offset weak global demand. There are, however, exceptions to the rule within the region. And I imagine there are a number of risks, right, to the outlook. Yes, indeed. Uh, regional geopolitical tensions are the key tail risk. Um, the military conflict between Israel and Hamas will have a limited impact in general under our baseline scenario that is confined to Gaza. That said, the risk of a miscalculation that triggers an escalation into a multi-front military conflict across a broader region has increased. Um, an adverse downside scenario that involves a direct conflict with Iran would have serious negative implications for all Middle East sovereigns. All right. And what catalysts could make you either, say, be more positive or more negative as we go through the year? Yeah. So talking about the conflict, a significant escalation would obviously motivate a negative outlook or a substantial weakening of global demand resulting in much lower oil prices because there are quite a number of hydrocarbon producers in the region. Now, on the other hand, we would become positive if financing conditions were to ease materially leading to capital inflows, especially into the lower-rated economies. Now, Christian, MENA consists of two very different regions from a credit perspective. We have the Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC countries, which are generally very highly rated, right? And then we have North Africa and Levant, where ratings are much lower. So I want to ask you specifically about the latter, particularly, say, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, and Lebanon. Now, these countries are all grappling with high inflation, obviously high rates and currency pressures. How do you assess their market access right now? And where do you see the highest default risks? Yeah, so you pointed to the three, Egypt, Tunisia, and Lebanon, that are the exceptions to the rule uh, when we discussed the stable outlook earlier. Um, and for, this, for those reasons you mentioned. Um, but just to clarify, Lebanon is already in default, 
Um, but restructuring hasn't occurred because of the political gridlock in the country. The delayed restructuring also means that Lebanon will continue to be shut out of markets um, on the external side. On the domestic side, the banking sector will need to be restructured and recapitalized. So, you know, there's not much financing available either. All right. And what about Tunisia? Well, we think Tunisia's market access remains impaired uh, because it's facing external financing gaps and it hasn't been able to secure an IMF program. Uh, We think that a program would help provide comprehensive external financing and boost investor confidence. For now, for Tunisia, FX reserves remain the key but finite backstop. Okay, and was Egypt able to issue markets last year? Yes, they were. Um, they issued in Chinese yuan, panda bonds, and Japanese yen, samurai bonds. Um, but these received guarantees, including from multilateral development banks. The government has actually further issuing plans in its financing strategy, but we think that market access will remain challenging. Uh, if you think about it, the external funding gap, and this is something investors like to look at, is at risk of widening because of lower tourism receipts and revenue from the Suez Canal due to what's happening uh, in the conflict and in the, in the Red Sea. Right. And also, I mean, we have seen funding conditions be quite good in the first few weeks of the year, but clearly windows do not stay open for long. And of course, tensions in the region can often lead to snapbacks in investor sentiment. Badis, turning to your next can you give us a whistle-stop tour of the major banking systems in the MENA region? And actually, how do you generally expect profitability and asset quality to develop across the region? Thank you, Victoria. As we've just heard from Christian, the MENA region is a story of two tales in terms of economic performance, with the GCC presenting a more benign operating environment when compared to the Middle East and North Africa. And the picture is actually pretty much the same, looking at credit fundamentals from a banking system perspective. In the Gulf, we currently have a positive outlook on the Saudi banking system on the back of momentum around the kingdom's large economic diversification agenda that is translating into government spending, which means high credit demand, sound loan performance, and robust profits for the banks. And what about in other parts of the GCC? Well, elsewhere in the GCC, the United Arab Emirates has shown a firm uh, post-pandemic economic rebound with business confidence in check, particularly in the vibrant non-oil economy of Dubai that has and will continue to benefit the bank's financial performance. And I guess, as we have just said, in North Africa and Levant, the picture is a bit less rosy, right? Indeed, you're very right. Um, Out of the main banking systems we rate in that space, Egypt and Tunisia are also the weak links on the banking side, since sovereign risk is material for those two banking systems that are directly exposed to their respective governments. We actually estimate that sovereign exposures held on the banks' books in both countries largely exceed the banking system's total equity base, which means that in case of a sovereign event, the fate of the banks is inevitably tied to the one of the sovereigns. Okay. But I also wanted to get your take on some of the longer-term trends we have seen playing out, particularly in the GCC countries. Why don't we start with the diversification of economies away from oil, for instance, and obviously implications for banks in 2024? Sure. So since 2022 already, uh, we are seeing significant additional hydrocarbon-rated revenues 
for the region's sovereigns that allow them to pay down debt, rebuild fiscal reserves, and accumulate foreign currency buffers. And this helped seeing progress with economic diversification agendas, notably in Saudi Arabia, in which you know, the banks heavily participate while supportive oil prices continue to keep consumer and investor confidence lifted in the non-oil economic space where financial institutions conduct bulk uh, of their activities. Okay, and what about trends and bank consolidation and M&A in the region? Because, I mean, I would like to understand from you, where are we on this trajectory? And, and again, what are the implications for banks uh, in 2024? So far, all six GCC countries completed uh, bank mergers and acquisitions, you know, during the past seven years uh, already. And we expect deals will effectively continue for three main uh, reasons. First and foremost, the economic drivers behind the transactions that already happen are said to remain uh, pretty much entrenched. Common ownership and the aim to enhance profitability uh, amongst shareholders still prevailing. Secondly, despite broad diversification agendas, the recent downturns show us again how GCC economies are still dependent on hydrocarbon revenues. And banks will need to scale up, maybe through M&A, if they are to participate in the region's massive economic transformation. Okay, and what's the last driver of continued banking M&A? Well, lastly, once having reached dominant positions at home, uh, what we've seen is that large GCC banks historically tend to venture overseas into markets with strong trade ties with the region. These include Turkey and Egypt, two sizable markets that offer significant inorganic growth uh, potential for uh, GCC banking players. Okay. Rehan, you're next on my radar. So far, um, we've painted a pretty upbeat and positive outlook for the region. How do you see these macro fundamentals translating into revenue and profitability growth for corporates in the GCC? And what about key credit metrics? Yeah, so there certainly is a more upbeat vibe at the moment with corporates having more opportunities to grow their business. Having said that, um, positive macro fundamentals doesn't necessarily translate into improvement in credit profiles for companies. And this is because corporates may have their own idiosyncratic risks that they're exposed to, such as having a stretched balance sheet or having a weak competitive position, which doesn't really allow them the flexibility to capture the opportunities. But the environment for companies is generally good. I mean, particularly for those in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, right? Yeah, that's true. Credit profiles for the companies we rate in the GCC countries are on average stable. And this is evident by the fact that of the 55 companies we rate, only two have negative outlooks, most are stable, and some have positive outlooks. Right. And which specific companies do you think have particularly interesting credit stories that are perhaps slightly different from the overall trend? I guess on one hand, you have big government issues like um, Saudi Aramanco versus, but then there's also some interesting names in our portfolio that are less affected by sovereign dynamics. I'm thinking of perhaps Arabian centers. What would you highlight here? Yeah, so Arabian centers, which is now operating as Sonomi Centers brand, is rated BA2 with a negative outlook by Moody's. Um, it's a successful and large mall operation in Saudi Arabia. The COVID pandemic hurt the company along with the commercial real estate sector globally. 
And the recovery in occupancy rates and credit metrics has been slower than we had expected, mainly because the company implemented its tenant rotation program and has been investing heavily in construction of new malls. But the economic growth and demographic trends in Saudi Arabia, however, should be supportive for the company and is something that we we are continuing to monitor. And are there other interesting corporate stories to highlight? Well, beyond this specific example, there's quite a bit of corporate activity happening, including M&A transactions by telcos in GCC countries, a very hot Dubai real estate market, as well as renewable energy and other ESG-related investments by national oil companies and state utility companies. Okay, Christian, I'm back to you again. Why don't we finish our conversation talking about geopolitical risk? Clearly, it's a very fluid situation in both Gaza, but also the Red Sea right now. Can you give us a sense of the different scenarios out there? Sure. Well, our baseline scenario assumes that the military conflict between Israel and Hamas remains concentrated in Gaza um, and for a protracted period. At the same time, there will be skirmishes between Israel and its allies against other Iran-backed groups, including the Houthi rebels in Yemen and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, that will continue for some time and may at times involve significant exchanges of fire. So in, under this baseline scenario, Egypt and Lebanon would see the greatest impact. For Egypt, we expect lower tourism receipts and now foreign exchange income from the Suez Canal as well. Egypt had also initially faced gas supply disruption from Tamar Field, and this gas was used for LNG exports. Uh, for Lebanon, it would be infrastructure damage. But importantly, and I, you know, this is something we want to highlight, these confrontations carry the risk of miscalculation that expand the conflict. At this stage, we continue to see an outright multi-front military conflict involving these other Iran-backed groups as a medium probability scenario. You know, I was talking about uh, the Houthis, Hezbollah, for instance. Uh, this is because there are the deterrents, disincentives, and trade-offs. Most notably, the increased U.S. military presence in the region and also the military capabilities across both sides of the conflict. Diplomatic efforts to de-escalate the, the, uh, the tensions have also increased. Okay, and what is the probability of a regional conflict with Iran? Um, I would say this still remains a low probability event for the same reasons we discussed of deterrence and disincentives for both sides. And what would this mean for both sovereign credit quality and also the general regional outlook? Yeah, we talked about this, um, a regional conflict with Iran being something that would motivate a negative outlook for the region. In, in general, how we think about the impact on sovereigns are through six channels. Um, the impact and likelihood would depend on the escalation scenario. So the first two channels are refugee inflows and gas supply with Egypt and Jordan most exposed. For refugees, this will involve a change in policy by both countries of not accepting new Palestinian refugees. Then we also have another two channels, um, hydrocarbon exports and goods trade. This would be due to a blockade of the Strait of Hormuz, affecting the oil and gas exporters with the exception of Oman. Um, and also for Egypt, trade disruption through the Suez Canal because of the Red Sea tensions, as, as we mentioned earlier. Finally, we have confidence-sensitive sectors, such as tourism and real estate, that would affect quite a number of Middle East economies, as well as financing conditions, affecting mainly the lower-rated sovereigns in the Middle East with large external financing needs such as Egypt and Bahrain. All right. I think we need to leave it here for today. As promised, we have just done a swift tour around the Middle East and North Africa. Now, to our listeners, what do you think? Did you have a different view? 
Let's get the dialogue going on this episode. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, let us know. Get in touch with the team at empodcastandmoodies.com. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moodys.com slash podcasts.